Hey, I'm so glad you're tuning in. And just as we get going here, I want to note a couple things for you that I I hope will be exciting to you. Uh, Next Sunday, April 25th, uh, we're going to be hosting a number of outdoor 50-person church services across our campuses. That's what we're working on, and we're really excited about it. These will be roughly half an hour, maybe a bit longer. We're going to serve communion at them, and we cannot wait uh, to host you in person. Also, then on May 9th, two weeks after that, we're going back to Heritage Park to the parking lot, and we're going to do another couple of drive-in services, and we cannot wait for this. We were blown away uh, by your engagement and excitement about the one we did on Easter, so we're going back. May 9th is Mother's Day, and so what we anticipate that week is a bunch of moms saying, you know what I really want for Mother's Day? All I want, you guys, is that you all come with me to church on Sunday. Well, we want to facilitate that for you, moms. And so uh, we're going to be hosting uh, drive-in services on May 9th at Heritage Park. All of these services, April 25th, outdoor at our campuses, May 9th at Heritage Park, all of them require registration um, in the middle of the week of. And so check social media and our website uh, later this week so that you can register and be a part of our in-person outdoor church services next Sunday and then later for Mother's Day. We can't wait to see you. I miss our gatherings so much. I miss so much about them. I miss the buzz just before a service starts. The building is so active. So many people are here. They're seeing each other. They're chatting. Kids are running around. I miss dismissing the kids uh, to kids church and just the flood of kids across our campuses. It just keeps going and going and going. Kids going and it all warms our hearts to see it every time. I miss the smiling faces. I miss the handshakes. I miss the hugs. That's how desperate things are are right now. I miss the awkward church side hugs. That's where we're at. It's it's that dire. I, I actually really, really miss seeing so many of you use your gifts in a myriad of ways on a Sunday morning to serve Jesus and bless the church all over our campuses, doing a myriad of different tasks to the glory of God, using your gifts. I miss getting to see that. I miss the sense of oneness and unity in the midst of our diversity, right? Diversity of of ages and ethnicities and gifts and socioeconomic status, all of that diversity, but this oneness and this unity in the gathering, in the gathered church. I miss the generations, the spectrum of the ages coming together and having Jesus in common and blessing each other from our kind of age bracket in ways that no other age could. That's just so much a part of what I miss and what's beautiful about the church. I miss the ability to think, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so for a few weeks because we're observing and interacting with people every Sunday and thinking, I haven't seen them, right? That mutual accountability that comes from the regular gathering and going, hey, someone's missing. It's harder to do that now. We can certainly reach out and encourage each other and we should be doing that, but it's just that we lose track of each other more in this season. I miss being able to have that mutual accountability. I miss hearing each other's voices raised in corporate worship to God, right? We've never looked at it as this like me and Jesus moment. I'm just singing my 
love song to Jesus. No, we've never looked at it that way. It's like, we're actually encouraging each other in this as we all raise our voices and it does something in our hearts and our spirits to hear others passionately sing of the greatness of our God. I miss corporate worship in our gatherings. I miss the power and presence of the spirit during the preaching of the word. I trust that the spirit of God is working through this but I miss the palpability in the room, that sense of what God is doing and where he's convicting and where a word of truth is, is hitting and, and we're, we're, we're experiencing that together. I miss all of that so much. The church is meant to gather. It's essential. We, we know this. It's commanded. And yet... Brief interruptions to the gathering of the church have happened for a myriad of reasons throughout church history. We're experiencing one of those moments right now. And one such instance is also found in our text today in Acts 8. At this point, the church is really young and yet it's forced to scatter for a season. And what marks the life of of a Christian in circumstances where the church can't gather? What marks the life of a Christian in circumstances where the church can't gather? Well, I think that there are are likely many, but our text shows us two things that mark the life of a Christian in a circumstance when the church is forced to scatter. First, we see that every Christian is a missionary, and second, every place is a mission field. Every Christian a missionary every place, a mission field. Now the context for the church scattering in Acts chapter eight is great persecution. Last week we, we looked at Acts chapter seven and the stoning of Stephen and then out from there we read in verse three of our text, we're told in verse three that Saul was ravaging the church. We're not gonna spend much time talking about Saul today because actually very soon Acts kind of pivots and he becomes a very central character in the book of Acts. So we will look at his story more fully later on in the series. But we're told in verse three that Saul was ravaging the the church and that word destroy or ravage is, is like that of a wild animal tearing a victim's body apart to death. Paul later puts what he was doing at the time of our text, Acts 8, He later says what he was doing at that time in Galatians 1.3, he describes it this way, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. That was his intent, going from house to house and pulling out men and women and ravaging the church. But here's a beautiful truth I want you to let sink deep into your bones. Okay, if you're a note taker, right, get the pen, the pad ready. Here we go. Here's what I want you to see. The methods of wiping out the Christian church have a reverse effect. Instead of destroying it, it spreads. The methods of wiping out, attempting to wipe out the Christian church have a reverse effect. Instead of destroying it, it spreads. Instead of smothering the gospel, persecution only succeeds in spreading it. We see that in our text. 
We see that throughout church history. I'm going to give you a couple examples of that today at the end of the sermon. So let's look first at every Christian, a missionary, picking it up in the second part of Acts 8 verse 1. It says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Down to verse 4. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Okay, who were scattered? All except the apostles. What did the scattered do? They preached the word. Who was scattered? All except the, all except the apostles. And what did the scattered do? They preached the word. First, the church scattered except the apostles. Meaning, at that time, as the church was being persecuted and scattering out into the countryside, outside of Jerusalem, no more large gatherings, no more mid-sized gatherings, probably no small gatherings. That Acts 2 ideal that was just six chapters earlier of meeting together in the temple courts and then meeting in homes and, and people being attracted to what was going on, smothered. They are now scattered. They're not able to meet like that now. Neither are we. We've been reading a book together as the pastoral team called Leveling the Church, Multiplying Your Ministry by Giving It Away. It's not some church growth strategy book at all. Actually, the premise is essentially this. All believers are ministers. Therefore, it's the role of the pastor to develop and deploy the whole congregation for ministry. The role of leaders in the church then is, is not to do the work of ministry for the church, but to equip the church for the work of ministry. For many, this is a complete paradigm shift. Well, I support the pastor in his ministry, and then I go about my routine of doing what I do. No, 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 no. The pastor pours into you so that you can go about ministering. See, what we see happening in our text is precisely that. The church deployed to be participants in the mission of God. Who are scattered? All but the apostles. And what did the scattered do? We're told they preached the word. That word preaching in the original language is where we get our word evangelism from. It means to tell the good news. It means to let people know that salvation is found in Jesus. Now, when you hear preaching the word, you, what probably comes to mind is what I'm doing right now. To preach means to kind of get behind one of these, you know? You gotta have this in front of you or you're not preaching, right? Ideally, it actually has a few steps up to it. It's really, really enormous. Built out of wood or stone, you know, pretty massive. The pulpit and the preacher gets up in the pulpit and then they preach. Well, that's not exactly what is meant in this text about that. Michael Green in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church, paints a picture of what that would have looked like. Here's what he says. As early as Acts 8, we find that it is not the apostles, but the amateur missionaries, the men evicted from Jerusalem as a result of the persecution which followed Stephen's martyrdom, who took the gospel with them wherever they went. It was they who traveled along the coastal plain to Phoenicia, over the sea to Cyprus, or struck up north to Antioch. They were evangelists just as much 
as any apostle was. Indeed, it was they who took the two revolutionary steps of preaching to Greeks who had no connection with Judaism, and then with launching the Gentile mission from Antioch. That's all coming up in the book of Acts. It was an unself-conscious effort. They were scattered from their base in Jerusalem, and they went everywhere, spreading the good news, which had brought joy, release, and a new life to themselves. This must often have been not formal preaching, but informal, chattering to friends and chance acquaintances in homes and wine shops, on walks and around market stalls. They went everywhere gossiping the gospel. They did it naturally, enthusiastically, and with the conviction of those who are not paid to say that sort of thing. Ouch, whoa, come on. (laughs) And then he goes and he concludes, consequently, they were taken seriously and the movement spread notably among the lower classes. What we're told in our text and what he's getting at is the early Christians gospel gossiped wherever they went. I love that phrase. What an amazing multiplication plan of God. And it lives on today. This is the plan of God for multiplication. Persecution and relocation couldn't stop the spread of the gospel. In fact, these things only helped it. The message of the gospel, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, was on the lips of the Christians as they scattered. God scattered the church, in other words, in order to scatter the gospel. God scattered the church in order to scatter the gospel. What a tragedy it would be if we let our moment of scattering pass us by. Are you using this season of scattering we're in to reach people with the gospel? Look, if you are a Christian, you are a missionary and you have a unique mission field. You have a mission field that in some ways the rest of us don't. It's your unique mission field and you are a missionary. Bring the gospel, share the gospel, gossip the gospel there. So first we've looked at every Christian, a missionary. Now second, every place, a mission field. Look at verse five. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the, uh, yeah, I'll stop there. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, this is significant. We're just, we kind of read through it, just reading and stumbling my way through it right there. But we read it and don't think much of it. This is huge. This is significant. Philip went to Samaria and preached the gospel there. Now, history records intense animosity between the Samaritans and Jews that had lasted nearly a thousand years already to this point. In 721 BC, the Assyrians took the inhabitants of Israel, which at that time were the northern kingdom. They took them off to Assyria, where the Jews intermarried with the Assyrians and Cuthites. In 587 BC, the people of the southern kingdom, Judah, were taken captive in Babylon. But in Babylon, there was no intermarriage. So when those Jews came back to their homes, they were in their minds unadulterated Jewish blood, unlike the inhabitants of the Northern Kingdom. So when the Jews returned to their land, the Southern Kingdom, they refused the help of the Samaritans in the rebuilding of their temple. 
They were like, no thank you. Not till the fourth century BC, however, did the rift with the Samaritans really intensify. When the Samaritans built their own rival temple on Mount Gerizim and repudiated all of the Old Testament scripture except the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews as hybrids in both race and religion. To the Jews, the Samaritans were a nation of half-breeds. If you're a Harry Potter fan, think mudbloods. There was even a popular Jewish prayer in those days that ended with the line, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. <laughs> like, can you imagine? And Lord, do not remember the Abbotsfordians in the resurrection. Like, <laughs> pretty intense, right? And the Samaritans felt the same way about the Jews. And yet, if you think about the ministry of Jesus, three stories come to mind. Two of them are quite famous. Jesus went to Samaria and went to a well and talked to a Samaritan woman there and actually told her that he was the Messiah. He confessed he was the Messiah to her, which he wasn't really doing at that time. He was telling people to keep it quiet. He was avoiding the comment. And yet he gladly tells her and then he, he offers her living water. At one point, we read in Luke 10, Jesus tells a parable about how we are to extend mercy to others. And the example set before Jesus hears, well, we know it as the parable of the good Samaritan. The Samaritan is set up as the one who shows mercy. Well, some religious folks that you would expect to didn't. And then in Luke 17, we read about Jesus healing 10 lepers. And they go off to the temple to show themselves as clean. And only one returns back to Jesus to thank him. And he's a Samaritan. And so these, these weavings by the gospel writers are, are showing uh, trajectory and, and, and the ministry and heart of Jesus. And so it should come as no surprise that the gospel would go to Samaria. In fact, if you have your Bible, go back to Acts chapter 1. Because Acts opens with the final words of Jesus before he ascends into heaven. And here's what he says, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In other words, this was always the plan of God. To reach the nations. Persecution is what drove the church to actually do what Jesus called them to do. Go to Judea and Samaria and the world. So the Christians go through Judea and Samaria to get away from the persecution and in so doing to where Jesus had called them to go in the first place. Persecution, in other words, drove them to greater faithfulness. Now, let me just apply this just a little differently. Take out the word persecution and, and think just difficulties. When difficulties have come your way in life and you've clung to Jesus in those moments, what has it done? It's, it's, it's actually driven you down into a deeper faithfulness, a deeper intimacy with Jesus, a deeper walk with him, greater faithfulness. When we can cling to Jesus in the difficulty and in this context, in the persecution, it leads us to greater faithfulness to the ways and the call of Jesus. 
And so Philip, on the run from Jerusalem, goes to Samaria and shares Jesus with them. Look, Philip wasn't a big shot apostle. He was a refugee entering a hostile environment. And yet he was a man taken by Jesus, so taken by Jesus and filled with the spirit that he couldn't stop telling others about Jesus. And before he knew it, he had a revival on his hands. Now the text goes on to tell us that a crowd formed when they heard him and then they saw the signs that he did as well might lead us to wonder, like, how are we supposed to apply that? Like, we are to go and tell, but should we expect that, like, we're going to perform exorcisms and healings and stuff? Like, what are we supposed to do with that? Is that gone? Is that dead? Does that still happen? Should we come with an expectation of that? What are we, what are we to think of this? Well, I love what Tony Morita wrote about that. He says, some of us may feel curious about a passage like this. We might ask, what's up with the exorcisms and healings? Does what happened here mean we should expect present day gospel preaching to be accompanied by the casting out of demons and the healing of the paralyzed and lame? Or does what we read here suggest it is appropriate to expect that some modern day Christians will have power to cast out demons and heal others at will due to some supernatural gifting? Now he says this, remember, we must read Acts in light of its genre. This is a historical book, which means Luke penned it to describe the events of the early church without necessarily commending to us its same practices. Now track with me. I don't think, he says, we should read of Philip's exorcisms and healings and assume the passage's primary application to our lives is that each of our local churches needs to start an exorcism and healing ministry. To be sure, we should be We should read and apply much of Acts directly, but we must also take care in making one-to-one correlations at every turn. We've got to allow the rest of the Bible to help us make interpretations and applications for the modern world. There was something exceptional about the way God did signs and miracles through the apostles, Stephen, Philip, and the others mentioned in the book of Acts. There was a unique nature to the early church's ministry. Nevertheless, God can and does heal people today. So if Jesus decides to intervene, signs and wonders like those we read about in Acts may be manifested in our day. If so, they will happen in order to give the world even more powerful pictures of what life will be like in Christ's coming kingdom. I hope you find that helpful. We shouldn't expect at every turn, that those kinds of actions will be manifested, but we should expect that if they are, they are to show the world Jesus in a way that helps point them to the kingdom. The purpose of the signs was to validate the message and bring a visual manifestation of what the kingdom of God is like. And the result, what was the result in Philip going to Samaria and sharing the gospel with them? It says in verse eight, so there was much joy in that city. The church is scattered. The church is on the run. They cannot gather. They're on the move. They're spreading wherever they can go and they're sharing Jesus as they go and people are getting saved and the mission is going forward and it's bringing joy. See, Philip brought with him to Samaria the message of Jesus that God loves them and salvation is found in Jesus and they can turn to him. Philip brought the message of Jesus with him and healing with him, right? More than mere words, but, but deeds and evidence of 
the Spirit at work. Philip also showed, the Spirit of God was also working to show the truth of what he was sharing. And as a natural consequence, what Philip was able to bring with him was a joy to the Samaritans like they had never known before. Look, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe that nothing is outside of his guidance. Nothing is outside of his hand. And that this passage is actually really, really prophetic for our moment right now. Bring Christ with you, Central. Bring Christ with you wherever you go. He will meet you in that act. He will meet you in the sharing. The Spirit of God will work as you step out in faith. We can't leave it up to the leaders at the gathering. In fact, we never should have, but some of us always kind of did. I'll let the leaders do the thing at the gathering, and then I'll go off and do my thing. That was never the point. And the Great Commission is an every disciple mission. The location is everywhere. Wherever you're scattered, wherever you are sent. That's our moment. I think that's what God wants to propel us into in this season of scattering, into a deeper faithfulness, into doing what we were always called to do from the get-go, to fulfill the words of Jesus and his command to us to go and to tell to the ends of the earth. And man, we're spending a lot of time out there. May we tell as we're there. What's driving you in this season of scattering? What's driving you in this season of scattering? Look, in this last year, I'm sure you felt every emotion, all sorts of emotions, and that's totally normal to be expected. But what's driving you in this season? Look, there's a, there's a place for asserting our rights. There is a place for that. There is a place for advocating for constitutional rights that we, we don't want given up. We don't want to hand back, that we actually think are good rights and helpful for not only us, but our community and our nation. You will never hear me say otherwise. Those things are important. But as I look at Acts 8, do you know what I'm convicted of most for our moment? that we're called to be gospel people who share gospel hope with those around us. And building off where we were last week in Acts 7, where Stephen prayed for the forgiveness of those who were killing him, as a ramification of the radical mercy and forgiveness we've received in Christ, do we see what our posture is to be towards those we ideologically disagree with? We have no fight to win with people. We have people to love and win to the gospel. There are no people who are our enemies. Satan is the great enemy. Satan is our enemy. People are people to be loved and to be given the gospel, to be loved to Christ. And these early disciples show us the posture to emulate while being pressed and scattered. Are you living the missionary life right now? Look, we want to meet. We will meet. But for the moment, we're scattered. 
Are we a radically forgiving, message-taking, Jesus-proclaiming people now? All right. I want to push things out a little bit. I want to hypothesize a little bit. What if the moment we're in right now is like a pressure cooker and things are only going to ramp up? Right? That, that, that persecution is, is going to become obvious and plain and our rights are going to be stripped. Let's say that that transition has already take, started to take place and is only going to ramp up. How should we approach such a thing? All right, a little bit of a hypothetical. I'm trying to place us what could come in our context to what is actually the context of Acts 8, right? Ravaging the church, going from home to home and grabbing men and women and throwing them in prison and even killing them at times. What if that, that, that kind of pressure that we're in, in the, the humble beginnings of that rising, how should we think about that? How should we approach that? Here's what I'm going to say. This might shock you. This might disturb you. I say, if that's not the case, it's a win, right? If that is the case, I'm going to say, that's a win. All right, let me, let, let me parse that out a little bit. If we could stay in Jerusalem, great, right? There are advantages to that. The work to be done wasn't complete. That's why the apostles stayed and so if the context we're in and the, the religious liberty that we've had, if, if that remains in the future, great, that's a win, right? We'll all celebrate that. We all desire that. That's a win. But if that's not the case, if we are persecuted and scattered, hear me, great. That's a win. Here's why. Because the mission of God not only continues when the church is forced to scatter, it thrives. That's the case in our text. That's always been the case throughout church history. Let me give you a couple examples. Present day, Iran is one of the worst countries in the world for the persecution of Christians. And yet, in 1979, there were an estimated 500 Christians in Iran. Now it's estimated that there are a million. Well, what happened there between 1979 and now? The church is growing most on the planet right now, it's believed, in Iran. And if there were only roughly 500 Christians in 1979 in Iran, and now there's roughly a million today, what happened in the meantime? How was there such flourishing? Well, what's happened since is only the intensifying of persecution of Christians in Iran, it's officially illegal to convert from Islam. It's illegal to do that in the nation. And it's illegal to evangelize, right? To share Jesus with anyone in the country is illegal. And there's tons of social pressures. When you become a Christian, if you're found out about that, you lose all your rights. And so in that context, all that's happened is Christianity has flourished. In China, an instructive, another instructive modern parallel for us. 
What happened in 1949 in China when the national government was defeated by the communists, 637 China Inland Mission missionaries, in other words, foreign missionaries, were obliged to leave. They, they had to leave the country. They had to go out of China. All foreign aid, all foreign missionaries gone out. And it seemed a total disaster. And yet at that time, it's estimated that there were half a million Christians in China. Yet... When that took place, the national Christians in China, even under severe persecution, began to multiply. Today, while the government is closing churches and arresting pastors, there are roughly 100 million Christians in China today. When we, when, when the attempt is to shut down the gospel, it spreads like wildfire. I, I want you to see the win-win of our moment. We go about sharing gospel hope wherever we go. Who knows? As we press in in this moment of scattering, we may just find a revival on our hands. Every Christian a missionary, every place a mission field, let me pray. Jesus, this is a hard word for me to swallow. I like my comfort. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not prophesying here. I'm not attempting to say what's coming. But Lord, I, I, just, I want us to be ready for whatever comes and be people like this church in Acts that were forced to scatter and yet they pressed into you into greater faithfulness. Lord, I pray that for us. It's a hard season. None of us like it. But Lord, I pray it would press us deeper in our intimacy with you and faithfulness to you. I pray that we would be heralds of the gospel, gospel gossips, just sharing it wherever we are, wherever we're scattered, that we would take the gospel with us there. Jesus, I pray this difficult moment, this scattered moment, that we're all tired of. We long to gather. We're excited about future plans to gather here imminently. But Jesus, I pray you'd find us faithful today. Lord, I pray that you would use us. Use us in our community to reach people with the gospel, to press us, where if we had not been scattered, the gospel would not have reached like it is. May that be true. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.